Amen. Hey, everybody. Good to be with you. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 21. We're going to get into that in just a moment. I'm excited about what God's going to be doing today. Um, I just feel the Lord moving in our times of worship and our times of our gatherings over the last number of months. We've been talking about that. We've been feeling like the Spirit is moving. And uh, a lot of you know my son, Grayson, he just uh, he started pre-K um, this year. And I just wanted, I, the other day I wanted to pick him up and take him to lunch, and so I asked him, because I didn't know, I was like, hey, what time is your lunch? I was like, do you know what time your lunch is? He's like, oh yeah, I know what time lunch is. I was like, what time is it? Said, it's at 8.79. <laughs> and I was like, this is awesome. I mean, I love it. I love that he has no idea what time lunch is. I love, I mean, what it would be like to not have any sense of time. Anybody with me on that? Like, to not have a schedule? That would be great. I would, I would go for that. And, uh. So if you're already thinking about lunch today, I just want you to know that we're on Grayson time today. I don't know when we're getting out of here. Maybe 1079, 1279, I don't know. Uh, before we get into our scripture today, I want to comment on one thing I, we talked about last week. We talked about, uh, as, as Leslie just mentioned, a little bit about our future of the church, and we talked specifically about even this, uh, a lot of, most of our services, we are full and we're feeling full, and we're also, we talked about some of our finances, and just said, let's be praying about what the Lord's speaking. And I said something that I just thought I, the Lord spoke to me about this week a little bit, and it was that, uh, do you know the whole 80% rule? I've talked about it a few times here before, but whenever a room, like a sanctuary like this, feels 80%, is 80% at capacity, it feels full. And that's a true thing, but I felt like the Lord kind of wanted me to breathe a little bit of vision into that, if that's all right, for just a second. And so I read a couple things this week. I was reading a book about revival, and it's called The World on Fire, in case you're wondering. Uh, and I was reading this book, and it was talking about how all these gatherings of people that they were just stuffing into these rooms, and they were like, overflowing, standing in the aisles, sitting in the aisles, and all these sorts of things. I thought, okay, okay. And then the next morning, I'm reading Mark chapter 2, and Jesus is in a house, and he's preaching. And then all these people, you guys know the story, whenever it's just packed full, and people are out on the lawn, and they're like trying to hear what Jesus is saying. And I was just thinking, every time where the Spirit is moving, or wherever the Lord is moving, space isn't really, just, people just, they fill in wherever they need to fill in. And I was thinking that every time we gather, if we're 80% full, um, that means there's 40 to 50 empty chairs in here. And I just thought, we really love each other, and we like, because I see it when you guys talk at conversation, you guys won't shut up, and then also after church, you guys just keep talking, and so I know you love each other, so when there's those full Sundays that, you know, where we're, I'm going to ask us, like, to scoot in, right, and, we're, and to move up front and to move, make room, because there's 40 to, 50, 40 to 50 empty chairs that God's already given us that we need to use. And so I'm just kind of breathing a little bit of vision that it, it may feel full, but it's not full, and we got more to do, and so I don't know what that means, except... I thought that was a good word. Are you with me? All right, all right, all right. So here we go. I want to lean in to what God is doing, which all that means, by the way, this is the time, because I believe God is moving. I think a lot of you have shown, seen evidence of that, and you've seen God doing. This is the time to actually be telling people about Jesus. This is the time to like reach out to your friends. This is the time to throw a neighborhood party. This is the time. It's now. Um, whenever the Spirit of God is moving, that's when you step and, and I don't want to be limited, one last thing, by a church metric, because that's not going to happen, right? We, we want to be, I don't want that to be something that squelches anything that God wants to do. So I said in the beginning of worship that I feel like some of us have been carrying some weight in our lives. And I just want you to know, as we begin, you don't need to carry that. You, you still need to. Um, I also believe a lot of us have been stuck and I think God is going to want to unstuck us today, unstick us today. Right? Um, 
So we're talking about Jesus, and it's been a really, a really fun, I think 16 weeks, we're pretty sure we're going to the end of the year now. Uh, I told you we don't know when we're ending, and we may, we've even talked about what 2019 looks. And so there's just a lot of things that you can say about Jesus if you haven't figured that out. And it's kind of like, oh man, we could say that, we could say that, we could say that. And, and, uh, and so today, uh, we're going to look at John 21, and this whole idea of Jesus changing everything about everything, I mean, he really did. He changed everything about history. He changes everything about you and me if we let him. Um, and, he changed, and his changes are always good ones. Have you ever noticed that? Like, they're always the best ones. It's the changes that we really need in life. And so as we get into John 21, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the whole passage from uh, verse 15 to 22, and I want to give you a little bit of context in case you aren't familiar with the story. But John 21 is the last uh, chapter of the book of John, and it's about a story between Jesus and his disciple Peter and specifically the part we're going to read at least. And, and, and if you don't know anything about it, this is after Jesus was crucified, after he was resurrected. And Peter had had a moment that was uh, a moment that he would like to forget. I mean, it's one of his most well-known moments, right? Um, not long before this had occurred. And it was the time in which he denied Christ, not once, but three times. And he denies Christ, and he has this moment that he, he, he wishes wouldn't have happened. Well, Jesus interacts with him and has a conversation with him on uh, over breakfast, they were having fish for breakfast. Huh, who thinks? Who would have thought of that? <laughs> and they're having fish for breakfast, and they're sitting beside a lake, and Jesus has this conversation with them. And again, this is after Jesus is resurrected, and so he was walking around as a resurrected Jesus does, and uh, uh, recently he's been dead, but now he's alive. So there's nothing going on in this story that's miraculous, right? Um, but that's where we're at. That's where we're going to pick this up. John chapter 21, verse 15. When he had finished eating the fish... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Which makes me ask, who are these? Perhaps he's talking about the fish. <laughs> Maybe. Do you love me more than these? All these fish that you got? By the way, Jesus had just like had them have a miraculous catch, by the way, like another miracle had happened. They bring all this. Do you love me more than all these fish? Maybe he's saying that. Maybe, and, and maybe put this in better context. Do you love me more than your job? Then he goes on. Or maybe more than these disciples, these friends. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Well, Jesus said, well, feed my lambs. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus said. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. And then very truly, I tell you that when you were younger, and this is Jesus speaking, of course, to Peter. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where, to where you do not want to go. Now, this is a reference, as most commentators and people believe, and I've even referenced a few times recently, this is a, this is a reference to the type of death that Peter would have, that he would be dressed, he'd be led out to where he doesn't want to go, arms stretched out, a reference to the crucifixion of Peter that would happen years later. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death, see, that, Jesus, that Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if, you want, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. 
So, so much is happening in this story. It's like, it's, it's, I love it. It's like oozing with goodness. And so much is happening, and it's connected to the longer, larger story of Peter. Um, if you don't know much about it, which I'm sure some of you do, because Peter's talked about a lot in the scriptures. Let me just give you a little bit of context. Peter is the most talked about disciple in the Bible because there's the most about him in the Bible. And so we know more, more about him than any, anybody else. Plus, we kind of all relate to Peter. We kind of we get Peter. Like, he is... He's always messing up, and there's something very relatable about him. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed. There's all those sorts of things going on. Peter was a fisherman by trade. He's a hard worker. He's gritty. He, he's bold. He's impulsive. He, he, of course, has this incredible moment, right, when he steps out on the water. That's one of his great moments, and he actually walks on water for a few moments before he starts to sink. And he also has but he's also the disciple that cuts a guy's ear off in the garden. And Peter's like, what are you doing? I mean, Jesus is like, what are you doing? Put your, put your sword away. And then he's also the guy that he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and a couple of the disciples. He's the one that speaks whenever, and Jesus says, this is the time to be quiet. And so he's always like doing the things that he shouldn't be doing, it seems like. Yet, despite of all that, Jesus, Jesus sort of declares him the leader of the disciples. It's evident in the scriptures. Every time the disciples are listed, Peter's name is first. Um, and and it, just, it seems to be that Jesus is positioning Peter in a way that empowered him and entrusted him. And we read about how in the scriptures there are 70 disciples, and then there's an entering of 12 disciples that we all know about. And then inside that there's an entering of three, and Peter's inside the three, as we know. And Peter's inside the three. And Jesus, Jesus had Peter along the ride with all sorts of crazy things. When Jesus raised the dead girl back from the grave, Peter and the other two were there, so the three were there. When Jesus was in the garden and he had asked people to come and pray, it was Peter and the two others. So the inner three are there with Jesus intimately all the time. And Peter becomes the leader of this. He's bold, he's confident. He says things like, I will lay my life down for you, Jesus. He has these bold, amazing moments. But Peter also had the most, the most clear like rebukes that were given to any disciples. I mean, it's a bad day whenever you say something and then Jesus responds to you and says, get behind me, Satan. Like, that's not a good day when Jesus says, get behind. I mean, when he's calling you Satan, like, that's, that's just, you don't sleep well that night. In the midst of Peter's mess up, Jesus believes in him, and he sticks with him. In fact, he, he renames Peter. Again, some of you know this stuff, but I want us to encounter the word in a fresh way today. Peter was originally named Simon, which, by the way, translates as pebble. And then you read the names in Peter, which, as we maybe know, translates as rock. And so... It sounds a lot better to say, I'm going to build my church on this rock than to say, I'm going to build this church <laughs> on this pebble. Jesus believed in Peter more than anyone had ever believed in him before. Even more than his parents. His parents named him Pebble. He said, no, no, that's not good enough. You're my rock. Someone who intimately knew Jesus Jesus believed in him, yet he has this spectacular fall. Luke 22, we read about the story of Peter's denial in this particular version. And Luke it includes a uh, powerful detail, but I'm going to start in verse, uh, into verse 55. Peter had followed Jesus as he was being arrested into the, kind of the, the courts where he was um, on trial. And it says that Peter sat down with them, is where we'll begin. Peter sat down with them, which was uh, just some random people of that were in the area, and it says, a servant girl uh, saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, speaking of Jesus, 
But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you, are, you, are also, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow is with him, for he is Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Now, the, the detail that's in Luke that's not in any else is whenever the Lord looks and turns at Peter. I mean, can you imagine this moment? Um, Peter must have been shaken to the core, right? I mean, if you put this in the context of the story, some of us are like, oh, denying Christ. Like, yeah, we don't want to deny Christ. But I mean, is this sort of like a spectacular, colossal failure? Um, well, he had just said, Lord, I will lay my life down for you like hours before. I'm going to die for you, Jesus. And, 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 and this whole story had been leading up to this moment. And when the moment happens, when the rubber hits the road, Peter crumbles and crashes. And he doesn't deny him once, but he denies him three times. This is the Peter who was so confident, so believed in himself. And then when it was time, for him to step into the moment, he has this colossal failure, and he feels like, imagine the, the, the overwhelming uh, sense of shame he must have felt. Um, it, maybe he even felt, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but there's some evidence in the scripture that leads to believe this, is that he felt like this even to disqualify him to some degree, that, that he and he'd be sat on the bench, so to speak, and Maybe that's why he's back in the boat fishing the morning that Jesus comes up to him, right? And Jesus calls out, what are you doing? And he's fishing, and he goes, he's not doing the work that Jesus had commissioned him to do. He's doing the work that he did before he met Jesus. He felt disqualified. And so Jesus comes in the, into the midst of that feeling that he had. And although you failed, I still believe in you. And I'm going, to f I'm going to go find you and make sure you know that. It's almost like that's the picture you can see of now at this lake. Like, I'm going to go find you and tell you that I'm still for you. There's, I love there's a detail in Mark 16. If you think that Jesus wasn't pursuing Peter, check this out. Mary goes to the tomb. You guys remember where Jesus is resurrected Easter morning? Mary goes to the tomb. Jesus is already risen. There's an angel there. Look what the angel says. The angel says this to Mary. He says, don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Go to tell the disciples and Peter. He's the only one he names. Like, and make sure you tell Peter I'm alive. You think he wants Peter to know that he believes in him? You think he wants Peter to know that he's not done? He names him. He tells an angel, hey, make sure you say Peter by name. <laughs> And he has this meeting in John 21, right? Jesus and Peter over breakfast. You ever had a breakfast meeting? <laughs> Some deep stuff happens on breakfast meetings. At least in my world it does. He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And uh, it's almost like the Lord walked him backwards, you know? I mean, we get it from the outside perspective. Like, oh, he's walking him through this repentance sort of thing for the denial three times. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Peter's saying, yes, Lord, we know you love me. Then he says, then feed my sheep, and meaning take care of my flock, my people, my church, 
on this rock, right? I'll build my church. And in John 19, I mean, excuse me, in verse 19, John 21, verse 19, there's this verse that's sort of like out of nowhere that's talking about how Peter would die. Like, you ever wonder why he says that right then? Like, hey, Peter, feed my sheep. Oh, by the way, you're going to die. You ever wonder, what did Peter say? I will lay my life down for you. And he's like, you know what? You will. You will do exactly what you said you were going to do. He's almost like he's, re, he's breathing into Peter this, this, this picture, like everything that you want and that you say and that you believe, like you're not done, like you're not disqualified. He was like recommissioning him in this thing that Peter had felt so deeply in his soul. Strangely, his death was the reaffirmation that God would use him to build the church. Somehow, him knowing like he would give his life for Christ was this recommissioning moment when Jesus says, I'm for you. And I just look at this and I go, Jesus never gave up on Peter, even, Peter, even if Peter gave up on himself. So I just have this belief today that so many of us have sidelined ourselves. Um, we don't see ourselves um, doing anything significant in the realm of spiritual leadership. Uh, and I just want to say today that God, God, God is seeing you and and that Jesus, when he thinks of you, um, he not only is for you, but he believes in you. And he's never stopped believing in you, even if you've stopped believing in yourself. And I want to show you three things, and this will really uh, kind of help us take this passage and kind of break it down just for a little while. But I think there are three things that I believe are happening in the story. You can put these on the screen. Um, and we can get stuck in the cycle of these three things. There's, there's failure, shame. There's comparison and there's no direction. And, and I'm just going to walk through these things for just a moment. And, and I feel like for some of us, I mentioned at the very beginning, I feel like there's freedom um, that the Lord wants you to step in today. And, and perhaps you'll find them here. Um, Peter had failed, as we've already talked, in the most colossal way. And if, and, and if you're putting it in the context of the moment, um, uh, Peter had basically committed every uh, failure that he would say he would never fail in. And so I said, he's probably feeling disqualified, um, feeling that he wasn't worthy, and he goes back to fishing, and I guess he can't do what he thought God had said, called him to do, and so he's, he's not the rock anymore, he's the pebble again. And here's what happens to us. Some of us have shame, and perhaps, perhaps some failure in life has defeated us, and we're here right now, we're here physically right here in church, but we're not really here and not really fully ourselves. And you're like, and you know it. You know it. You know that like, I'm just sort of sitting here on the bench. Like God's spoken some things to me before, but you just feel stuck. Maybe you've committed a sin that you just feel like you can't overcome. Maybe there's been some sort of failure in your life. Maybe there's been some sort of really public thing that's happened that you're like, man, that was so, it brought me so much shame. Maybe, maybe, maybe perhaps you made a promise to God and you never really fulfilled that promise and now you're sitting here and you're going, I know this about me and I, I cannot step into the things that God really calls me to. I can't put myself in front of people again. I can't put myself out there in ministry again because I feel like truly I've disqualified myself or at least I've severely impacted what I'm allowed to do. 
Do you understand that that, that is not truth? That's a lie. And you feel stuck. And you feel stuck with where you are because you feel some level of, I'm not worthy. And he wants you to be free of failure and shame. He wants to pull you out of that mud that you've been in. And he wants to set you free. You know, you are not destined for the life that you've done. But God is calling you into a life of things that you've never done, things that you've never imagined. And I think so many times we define our lives and our future based upon the things we've done. And this is a good word for some of us, that your lives are not destined for the things that you've done. But it's He's calling us into the things we've yet to do. So there's, a, there's, there's this failure and shame that we get stuck in. Then there's this comparison. And maybe you're like, where's comparison in the story? I don't, I don't know where that's coming from. Let me show you a verse. We'll go back to it. I read it already, but verse 20 and 21. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one that had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> so I've talked about the disciple whom Jesus loved before, which I totally, if you don't, if you, if you don't know, what, you know what that's about, in case you, it's, it's the guy who wrote the book. He names himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is just brilliant. Next time I write a book, I'm just going to say the coolest guy on the planet. So. <laughs> and, and he, in case you don't know, so he, I absolutely love the details that John gives about himself in his own book. <laughs> this one right here. The disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Like, dude, really? Like, like, is this like a creepy follow? Like, are you like, eat, like, what, are you supposed to be there? He's like, you know, like, I don't know what he's doing here. He's like listening into this conversation between Peter, Peter and Jesus, and and, and I just love it. And then he says, this was the, and then he wants to make sure he clarifies who he is. Like, this is the one the disciple whom Jesus loved. Parentheses, the one who leaned back against Jesus at supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Because surely, Lord, it's not me. Which one of these losers are going to betray you? Because I'm the one you love, right? And so this, this is just, I just love it. And, and I don't have time to go through it today, but you'll find evidence in the scriptures that Peter and John may have both been trying to be Jesus's favorite. They were trying to like, who's, who's number one? John or Peter? John or Peter? And there's all sorts of stories where you're just like, this is it's almost funny, but it's, almost, but it's so real that it's inside the gospel. Someone's writing the truth of God's word, and they're just recording the scriptures. And you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much flesh and humanness in this. And we don't even realize it. And John probably didn't even realize it. And the Lord was just like, I'm going to put this in there, John. You don't even know what you're doing, but it's going to, be, it's going to preach in 2,000 years. You just wait. So they have this, they have this like competition, like who's Jesus' favorite? Now, they loved each other. Peter and John loved each other, but you can read some comparison and petty competition in, into their relationship. And then after, after Peter says, what about him? What did he so he just said, hey, this is how you're going to die. He says, but what about, what about him, the, guy, the creepy guy following us? What about him? He says, what is that to you? Why are you worried about him right now? We're talking about you. Why are you, why are you looking at him? Why are you comparing yourself to him? It has nothing to do with what I'm going to do with you. You know, the cycle of comparison 
is so real and relevant for so many of us today. We measure ourselves against one another. I mean, it's been well documented. Like social media is like the king of this, right? We look and see the lives of others through social media and we think, wow, my life is nothing like that. How every time when they take a picture do they look like they're in a magazine? And we compare our homes and our clothes and our successes and, our, and even our failures. We feel better when someone fails more than us. In social, in social media, we compete, and comp we compete for who gets the most likes almost. Like, man, that person always gets like 258 likes. How's that possible? Which is dumb because if you notice, on social media, the most pointless things get the most likes. Have you noticed? <laughs> things like dogs on skateboards get like 25,000 views. I post something about Jesus that's really thoughtful and insightful, it gets 17 likes. People don't like the things that really matter. They like the things that don't matter. Who in here hasn't looked at someone else? Can we just be real? Who in here hasn't looked at someone else, a friend, and compared yourself to their life? Compared your abilities? Compared your accomplishments? Compared your money? Your car? You know what happens when I compare? I lose my joy. When I compare myself to what others have, maybe they have a nicer car or more money, well, I get jealous and I lose my joy. When I compare myself to where others have been, <laughs> man, they travel everywhere. Why do they get to do everything and I lose my joy? When I compare my opportunity, why do they always seem to get the opportunity and I never do? I become bitter and I lose my joy. Like I said, I just want to be honest. Like, comparison is killing us. It's running us ragged. We feel like we have to keep up with them. You know what I'm saying? We need to keep up with her or him. And as a result of all of us feeling the same tension around comparison, we keep pushing the pace faster. You know what I'm saying? And we keep pushing the ball further down the court to where we, we keep amping up. Ooh, I just said amping up. That is the word of the day. Um, we keep elevating the, the need for more, and we focus more on keeping up with them than perhaps where God is leading us. And the cycle of comparison keeps us focused on, on the people beside us instead of Jesus who's in front of us. That's what happened right here with Peter, right? He starts looking beside him, and Jesus says, what? What does he say? What is that to you, what I do with that guy? You must follow me. That's what he said. What is that to you? Some of you need to be set free of comparison. You constantly feel the weight of measuring up to someone else. You constantly feel the weight and the pressure to succeed in your career like them. You constantly feel the stress of pleasing your parents or pleasing someone in your family. On the list of successes and accomplishments we have, you've constantly feel the pressure to, to travel. Some of us, I've, I've heard that one out there, by the way, to travel so you can keep up with everybody else who's traveling. And so we just spend all of our money on traveling so we can just keep up with the world that's traveling. And you feel this strange and awkward need to eat at the coolest places in the city because everyone else is. And you know what? I love cool places and I love traveling and I love 
all the, none of those, that's not the enemy. Do you see what's going on inside of it, though, is that what's driving us and the motivator is who's beside us and not who's ahead of us. To all that, Jesus says, what is that to you? He wants to set you free from the cycle of comparison. And many of us get stuck here, and many of us are stuck here right now. And we can't move forward in what Jesus has for us and what he's commissioning us into. And then the last one, he, he gets stuck with, with simply feeling this, no direction. No direction. By the way, this is what happened when the boy band One Direction broke up. We all had no direction. Some of you didn't even laugh at that. I worked hard on that joke. Sorry, I, I did divert. Peter had a clear direction before his failure. He knew what his passion and his purpose was. He knew exactly what he had been commissioned to do. He knew what God had called him to do. But then he has this, he has this failure, and all of a sudden, he's like directionless. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what he's doing. He goes backwards, doesn't he? He goes back to fishing, and he is sort of probably in this place, I'm assuming, a little bit here, but he probably has no idea what the future holds. And some of us here this morning, we feel like we have no direction and we're just stuck. We're just living. And nearly all of us find ourselves here at times in which we, we, we are in a great career, maybe even. We're in a career and we ask, and we kind of have this moment. You ever had this moment when you wake up, am I really going to do this for the next 10 years? Am I going to do what I'm doing right now for the next 20 years? Is this what I'm doing for the next 30, 30 years of my life? And so when we, when, we, when we quit looking down at our feet and just saying, okay, I got it, and then we look up, we go, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't even know where I'm going. I don't even know what I'm doing. And we don't even have any sense of direction about what, what God's really calling us into or what we want to give ourselves to in this world. Is anybody with me on this? spinning our wheels, spending a lot of money, spending a ton of energy and a ton of time doing something that we don't even know if we want to do. And we feel stuck. And we're spinning all this energy and it's like we're spinning our wheels, but we're not actually getting traction on where we want to be going. And we just find ourselves like, you know what I'm talking about? Man. Spirit, I just want to pray right now. I want to show you a verse. Um, you can go to the next slide here. What Jesus does. So right after he said, hey, you're going to give your life to the church. He said, follow me. Then later in verse 22, after he, it's the end of the interaction with Peter, he says, you must follow me. You see, so often in life we think direction is this or that. Don't we? Which path? And I just, want you, I just want you to hear something today, that direction is bigger than this or that. Jesus says, Peter, I, I want to get you moving again. You've gotten stuck. You've been, you, you, feel, you feel something that has sort of derailed you, and he says... I want to get you moving again, and here's what I want you to do. <laughs> I want you to follow me, and I'll lead you. <laughs> this, maybe for you this means quit trying to do it on your own. 
quit trying to blaze your own trail. Quit trying to work yourself to death on trying to figure out all the answers and to just start doing the small faithful things that he's already said for you to do. Jesus has already given you so much to follow. Just do that and see what happens. What if you actually just did the things you already know? The things that Jesus already said to follow you in, what if you just did that? Can you imagine how radically different your life would be? To love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor? I mean, we just start there. Like, could you imagine what would happen if you just said, okay, Jesus, I'm gonna quit leading here and I'm gonna follow you. So Peter had this colossal failure after he had tried to do it on his own, right? And he couldn't do it on his own. When the rubber met in the road, he failed. And then what does Peter or Jesus do? Hey, hey, do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes, then feed my sheep. Oh, by the way, and here's what I'm telling you to do. Follow me, just follow me, follow me. Some of this room may be obedient to just the call to follow Jesus. And some of that means some of you is the call to follow Jesus for the first time in your life. Some of you is the call to follow Jesus like again in your life because you have to recommit to him. Some of you, you need to follow his word. You need to follow the dream that he's already placed in your heart. You need to follow and be obedient to things that he's put in front of you already. Listen, Jesus says, follow me. I want you to bow your heads and I'm gonna try and finish up really fast here. I said today is about being set free. Here's, here's the thing. I had this picture this week about, um, about the weight that some of us carry on our shoulders. And I don't know if you've ever literally felt the weight of life on you, where you get like stress in your shoulders and in your neck and you feel it physically. And I think Jesus wants to say to you today that I am for you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Follow me and I'll take the weight that you're carrying. You can trust me. And he wants to take that weight of failure and shame off of your shoulders. He wants to take that weight of comparison off of your shoulders, that weight of stress and worry about the future. He wants to take it off of your shoulders. God wants to pull that weight off of your shoulders and he wants to recommission you for the good work of his kingdom. He wants you to feel worthy and qualified that there's no failure that Jesus that stops Jesus from believing in you. He doesn't want you stuck in the cycle of comparison, trying to measure up to others. Jesus wants to remind you that he sets you apart for a special work. He's given you direction. Even in the smallest things, he says, will you follow me? So I just want everybody in the room to really consider what they need from Jesus today. Have you been stuck in shame or failure? Have you been stuck in the cycle of comparison? Have you been stuck with no direction. And today I wanna invite you to allow the spirit to break through in your life by lifting that weight off of your shoulders so you can be unstuck and begin moving forward. I want you to invite, I wanna invite you to almost, almost feel like that weight that has been pushing you down in the mud will be lifted off so you can actually get moving again. So today, if, if any of this is Feeling, if you're feeling this in a way that the Spirit's speaking to you and you feel like you need to get unstuck and you need, you need to be set free of something, would you, with everybody's heads bowed, would you just raise your hand right now? Yeah. You are not alone, friend. We're gonna sing, and as we sing, I wanna encourage you to come to one of our prayer team people, one of our staff that are gonna be up here praying with you, and we'd love to pray over you 
and to pray for the freedom that God wants to give you today. So Father, I pray now that as we spend a few moments responding to your word, that God, you would use this time to do ministry and to do work for people and in their hearts. We pray this in your name.